We're in John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The disciples there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I'm from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I'm with you only for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you won't find me. And where I am, you can't come. 
On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. Um, my name's James. If we've not met, it would be great to talk to you afterwards. Um, it would also be really great if you could keep your Bibles open at John chapter 7. Um, it's another long, complicated chapter in John's Gospel, and so we're going to need God's help as we come to look at it. So why don't we pray together? Our Father, you say that your word is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And so we pray this evening as we look at these words in John chapter 7 together that you would show us the gold that's in these verses. Please would you um, point our eyes once more to the Lord Jesus and have them fixed on him, the one who gives us living water. And we pray in his name. Amen. So this past week just gone, I've been um, leading a summer camp for 11 to 14 year olds. We had um, 19 11 to 14 year olds with us um, at uh, school just up in Oxford. Um, it was a great week of activities and of looking at the Bible together. Um, and one of the things that's important as you lead a camp for 90 people that age um, is a principle that I call maximizing their tiredness. You see, to stop a Lord of the Flies type moment, it's very, very important that you keep them just a little bit more tired than you as leaders are. So there are loads and loads and loads and loads of energetic activities. Um, And it was great. We were playing lots of fun games. But last week, the weather was so hot um, that water was one of the key things that was needed all week. And so we'd play games and I'd go and get water and we'd play more games and we'd get more water and more games and more water. That is until um, a WhatsApp message came through to our, our group chat And one of the leaders said, the shower's not working. And then another said, the kitchen tap's not working. And then another said, the toilet won't flush. And then the the person organizing the whole camp said, the school's just told me the water is out. And it turned out what happened is that the workman had, had struck the pipe and caused a massive blockage in the pipe that shut off the whole water supply to the camp. And so our, our, our teenagers were pretty thirsty in the sweltering heat And while other more responsible leaders than I were going off to Tesco in the car to pick up five litre bottles of water, I was thinking, what a great picture of John chapter 7 this is. (laughs) 
You see, in John chapter 7, if you look down with me at verse 37 and 38, Jesus makes an extraordinary claim. Look with me at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus stands up and says, I'm the one. If you, if you come to me and believe in me, I can give you the soul satisfying water that you all long for. The weary longings that you and I feel as we live our lives here on earth, the longings we have in our hearts for heaven, for relationships that aren't broken, for freedom from evil, for a home that is permanent and secure, those weary longings are more and more. Jesus says, if you come to me and believe in me, I will give those to you. I'm the one who can provide water. But in John chapter 7, it's like there is a, a problem with the, the supply. There's a blockage in a pipe somewhere. Because as you read through the, the chapter, I don't know if you noticed, but there were so many, many different responses to Jesus, and most of them were not, I believe in you. I'll accept this living water. Just flick through the, the chapter with me quickly, and you'll see all the different reactions there are to Jesus. So look down at verse 3. The brothers, they think he's an amazing miracle worker. The crowds in verse 12, some of them say he's a good man. Some of them say he's a liar. In verse 15, he's an amazing teacher. In verse 20, he's evil to the point of being demon-possessed. In verse 32, the authorities think he's a criminal to be arrested. Some are saying he's the prophet. Some are saying he's, he's the Messiah. And if you look at verse 43, it really sums up the theme of the chapter. The people were divided because of Jesus. Jesus stands up and says, I, I can give you living water. And the response is, division, confusion. Who is he? It's all the way through. It's like there's, there's a, a blockage in the hearts of all of these people as they look at who Jesus is and they won't believe. They'll say all sorts of things about who he is, but they won't believe. And so the issue that we are thinking about tonight is why don't people believe in Jesus? Why don't people believe in Jesus? That's the theme of chapter seven. What are the issues down under the surface of our hearts that will stop us believing in Jesus, coming to him and embracing the living water that he offers? And this is an important question for all of us to ask. If you're here and you wouldn't yet call yourself a believer in Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here. It's great to have you. I hope you've been given a warm welcome. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to ask the question, why don't I believe in Jesus? I, I don't promise to be able to cover every single reason that people have, and I'd love to chat with you afterwards. We're going to look at two massive reasons. But perhaps this evening, as we look at John chapter 7, some of the, the responses of these people will resonate with you. I might expose something in your hearts and make you want to come to Jesus. But if you're here and you would already call yourself a, a believer, actually one of the big themes that runs through John's gospel is the idea that there are people who say that they're believers, and as the gospel goes on and on, it transpires they're not. There are believers who actually end up not believing. And so this chapter is going to help us all, as we call ourselves believers in Jesus, to identify things in our hearts that will pull us away from him and pull us away from the, the soul-satisfying water that he offers. We're not going to have time to look through the whole of the chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through to 24 and just focus in on Jesus' brothers and the Jewish crowds. And we're going to see um, why they don't believe in Jesus. Um, there should be an outline on the back of your sheets, and we're going to work through those. So if you could turn to verse 1 of chapter 7. And we're going to look at Jesus' brothers. 
who don't believe in Jesus because he'll make him unpopular. Verses 1 to 13. Let's have a look. So verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, at first glance, what what the brothers say to Jesus seems pretty sensible. At the end of chapter 6, you might remember that Jesus' popularity has taken a massive slump. Loads and loads of people have stopped following Jesus. He's basically just left with him and his 12 disciples. He's performed loads of miracles. Everyone can see that. That's not in question. But Jesus has said some hard things in chapter 6, and people have left. But his brothers think there's a festival going on up in Jerusalem, a massive festival with people pouring in, and now's the time for you to go up there, Jesus. And if you can perform some miracles there or do some teaching there, you can regain the crowds. Your popularity can go back up. It'll be great. If Jesus can just perform a few miracles, deliver a killer sermon or two, then his popularity will return. They sound so supportive and it it makes so much sense. Except verse 5, John tells us what we're to understand. Just look at verse 5. They said these things for even his own brothers did not believe in him. His brothers want him to go up to Jerusalem because they don't believe in him. How does that work? Well, in verse 6 to 9, Jesus explains why. Let's read those verses. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Jesus makes a comparison between him and them. And the headline is this. Jesus is living for God's approval. The crowds live for the world's approval. Jesus lives for God's approval. The crowds live for the world's approval. Let me just show you that in two ways. So firstly, notice the timing. Notice the timing. The brother's concern is to go up to the festival right now. They want to gain the the PR win. They live for the world's approval. They they, they care about the opinion poll ratings. But Jesus says, verse 6, My time is not yet here. My time is not yet here. See, he's not concerned with the world's approval. He's concerned with following God's timetable. He's working to a a divine timetable. He's living for God's approval. That is, Jesus will go up to the festival when God says, in the way that God says, for the purpose that God says. He he cares about what God thinks, not about what the world thinks. And that happens to mean he's going to go up a bit later in secret so that he won't be killed then so that he can get to the cross and die as the the, the saviour of the world, just as he's always wanted to do, the reason he's come into the world in the first place. See, Jesus is living for God's approval. The brothers aren't working to that timetable, so verse 6, for you, any time will do. It doesn't matter. They can go up whenever the world wants. But notice also the reaction. Jesus will be hated, but they will be accepted. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. See, the brothers will go up to the the festival and they'll be welcomed. The world will applaud them, but Jesus will go up and he'll be hated. The world will hate him. 
See, as you read through Jesus' teaching, he, he addresses every area of life. And one thing that he does is he explains why the world's actions are evil. That's what it says. I testify that its works are evil. Jesus talks about the way we use our words, how we spend our money, who we have sex with, how we treat the poor, how we treat our enemies, and so on and so on. Jesus talks about every area of life, and the world hates him for it. Jesus cares about what God thinks, and so speaks what God says. And the brothers, well, they'll go up and they'll be welcomed because they don't care what God thinks. When I was a bit younger, I had a season ticket for Luton Town Football Club. Um, and I would go along most Saturdays and, and watch Luton Town play. And, and football fans are absolutely amazing. Even if you don't watch football or care about football, football fans are the most incredible sorts of people. They're so, so passionate about a few people kicking a ball around a pitch. It's amazing. And there's one thing that you notice about football fans is that any player who walks onto the pitch can only ever be applauded by one set of fans. Doesn't matter what they do, they'll only be applauded by one set of fans. So they'll, they'll be on the pitch and they'll, they'll score a goal and one set of fans will passionately cheer and the other set of fans will passionately boo. In fact, the only time I've ever seen a player be applauded by both sets of fans is when they've got so badly injured they have to come off and everyone claps that they're leaving the pitch as the new player comes on to be applauded by one set of fans only. They're on opposite teams working for opposite goals, different sets of fans different players. You can only be applauded by one set. And it's like that with God and with the world. See, as we live our lives, either the world will clap or God will clap. You can only have the approval of one. And that's the problem with Jesus' brothers in verses 1 through to 13. They care about the world's approval and not God's. Did you know that you will never believe in Jesus or keep on believing in Jesus if the thing you care most about is the world's approval? It's a big blockage under the surface of our hearts that will stop us believing in Jesus, coming to him for the soul-satisfying water. Loving the world's approval is, is a powerful magnet that pulls us away from Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he offers. We've heard it already from Fee this evening as she talks about Dave. And how he knows that his family will reject him if he comes and says that he's a Christian. It's a massive thing. What will my family think? What will my friends think? Won't I lose intellectual credibility? Won't I have to believe things that are unacceptable in modern society? The world's approval is a very powerful thing. I remember a few years ago, I was at a carol service here. Um, and I was excited because one, one of my good friends had come along who wouldn't call themselves a Christian. And he, he sat through and he's excited to come. And he, he enjoyed the whole of this carol service. He enjoyed the songs and he enjoyed the, the talk at the end. And I, I turned to him afterwards and said, what do you make of it? What did you think of Jesus? Um, and I explained to him the, the message of Jesus, stuff we've been seeing all the way through John's gospel. Uh, and he turned to me and looked me straight in the eye and he said, James, you know that I'm never going to believe that. And that was it. It was the end of our conversation. I am never, ever going to believe that. And as we talked more and discussed more, for him, I think one of the massive things is what his family will think. Family who follow a different religion. I will never believe Jesus because of that. It's one of the massive blockages that are in our hearts. And this magnet force of the world's approval reaches even into a church like ours. See, in all honesty, I guess most of us really want to be liked by the world. All of us want to. We want to be 
applauded by friends and family and colleagues. But the problem is, verse 7, that Jesus is hated by the world. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to follow the way that Jesus lived, and that will mean being hated by the world as well. Following Jesus will make us unpopular. You know, I've been here at CCM for the best part of almost 10 years now. And one of the things that, as I reflect back on 10 years here, I think of faces and names of people who used to be sitting in the seats that you're sitting in, um, who I've sat in Bible study groups with, who in every way looked like they were believers, but who now no longer come along. And as I think back to reasons why, it's not the case for everyone, but for, for many, actually, it's a, they want to live a lifestyle that the world approves and that God hates. It's a blockage that lies in lots of our hearts, and we have to watch out for it. One reason why people don't believe is because it will make us unpopular. Reason number one. Let's turn now to look at reason number two in verses 14 to 24. 14 to 24. And this is the the second group of people we meet in the chapter. And the second group that we meet are the Jewish crowds. So Jesus has come up to the, the festival a little bit later than the brothers have. Um, imagine Jerusalem, it's packed, it's full of people. It's one of the f- three festivals in the year where every man has to go up and they bring their families along and they're all living in um, tents outside. Um, and they arrive at this massive festival and the crowds are there. And as you look through, you'll see that the crowds have kind of two related issues with Jesus. The first one is that he doesn't teach the Bible in the right way. Just look at verse 14 and 15. It says this, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach? The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? So the Jews, they took God's word very seriously. They were God's people. They'd been given the Old Testament. And they also cared how it was taught. Now, what usually happened would be that that a teacher would go to kind of uh, be taught by a rabbi, like getting a theological degree, and then they would keep on teaching And they would keep on quoting other rabbis to kind of say, look, I'm not making this stuff up. This rabbi agrees with me, and this rabbi agrees with me, and this rabbi agrees with me. Look, I'm not making it up. And the crowd are amazed at Jesus' teaching, but they want to know his qualifications because how can it be so good when he hasn't been taught? He hasn't got one of our accepted degrees. He doesn't have the right authority. He doesn't teach the Bible the right way. You see the second issue if you look down at verse 23 which is he doesn't keep the Sabbath day in the right way. So verse 23, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? So back in chapter five, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day and the crowds were annoyed because the rabbis said, you can't do that, that's breaking God's law. So he doesn't keep the Sabbath day in the right way. What's the connection between the two, not keeping the, teaching the Bible the right way and not keeping the Sabbath day the right way? Well, the crowds care so much about external religion. They care about what religion looks like. They want to do religion their way, and Jesus won't let them. Now, the response that Jesus gives in verse 16 to 24 is pretty complicated. Um, If you want me to walk you through the logic step by step, I can do that later, but it's pretty complicated. Let me summarize again, give you the headline. Jesus says to them, you care loads about appearances, But underneath, in your heart, you don't care one bit about listening to God. You care about external appearances, but underneath, you don't care one bit about listening to God. That's what he says to them. 
You perhaps see this in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You take pride in the law that you have, and yet you're trying to kill me, which the law says, don't kill. So there it is. You care about the externals, but underneath, you're trying to kill me. Or again in verses 21 to 23. They care about circumcising people on the Sabbath, but they are annoyed at him for healing on the Sabbath. So he's doing a great thing. He's keeping the law in terms of loving other people by healing someone on the Sabbath. And they're like, no, 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 no. That breaks the law. You can't do that. They care about the appearance, but underneath, they don't actually care about what God cares about. It's summarized at the end in verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. If you peel back the religious exterior of the crowd, underneath you find a group of people who actually don't know God and don't want to keep his law. They care far more about the external religion than they do about God. There's another gospel where Jesus uses the the picture, the metaphor. He calls um, these people whitewashed tombs. It's an extraordinary picture, isn't it? You know, you're walking through a graveyard and you see this, this tomb that looks white and beautiful and perfect on the outside. And you go, wow, isn't, isn't that a really great tomb? And then you go, oh, underneath, what's inside? Nothing. It's dead. It's rotten. That's what these people are like. They care about the externals. They care about looking good religiously. But underneath, just dead. It's nothing. And again, one of the things that stops people believing in Jesus is a love of external religion. A love of external religion. It's a big blockage in the heart that stops people accepting the soul-satisfying water that Jesus gives. You know, at a church like ours, we, we have few ceremonies and few, not that much liturgy and that sort of thing. It might be hard to spot, but, but up and down the country, there have been many people who've gone to church today because they care about the liturgy or they care about the architecture or they care about the ceremonies and the history, but underneath in the heart, there's no love for God. But it is possible for, for that love of external religion to, to infiltrate a church like ours. The scary thing is that you and I can be here every single week And yet every single week drift further and further and further away from a genuine trust in God. You might notice this drift if you've been coming to church more out of habit or to see your friends than because you care care about growing in love towards God and obedience to what he says. Or if you, you sing the songs with joy and thankfulness and yet in your hearts there is no joy or thankfulness. Or if you're you're quicker to criticize the style of the sermon than to respond to what has been said from God's word. We may not have the the statues and the incense and the ceremonies, but the heart remains the same and we don't want to drift. The crowds loved external religion more than they loved God and it will eventually wither our belief in Jesus. So as we've looked at that first part of the the chapter, we've seen these two massive things that stand in the way of a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, coming to him and receiving soul-satisfying water. We've seen that trusting Jesus might make us unpopular. We've seen that believing in Jesus is hard when you love external religion. And a good question for you and I to ask um, afterwards and to one another is, do we see those things in our hearts? Do we see our hearts walking in that way? But as we move towards an end, what, what do we do when we find these blockages in our hearts? 
How do we respond? What's the right way to respond? What should we do? We've seen throughout John's gospel as we look through, haven't we, that, that God is the one who changes our hearts. God is the one who changes our hearts. See, we might instinctively want to go, right, I'm going to try much, much harder now not to love the world's approval, not to love external religion. But actually, it's God who changes the hearts. We've seen that all the way through. Do you remember back in chapter 3, that man Nicodemus who came to Jesus said, well, how, how do I get into the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's something that comes down from above. The spirit has to work in you to change your hearts. See, God is the one who changes our hearts. As we spot these things going on inside of us, we have to cry out help and just say, God, please will you help me? Please will you change my heart? I can't do it. As you look at verse 37, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That implies that we recognize that there is a thirst. There's something missing. There's something that we don't have. There's a lack inside of us. We come to Jesus and he is the one who fills us up. He is the one who changes our hearts. And the wonderful news is that, that God, it does change people's hearts. He does. One of the things I find most amazing about the account of Jesus' brothers who didn't believe in him at the start in verses 1 to 13 is that as you look back in church history, you find that at least one of them, their hearts did change. As we draw towards an end, I want to tell you the story of, um, of one of Jesus' brothers called James, one of the people who was there telling him, go up to the festival, you can be popular, you can do that. Let me tell you what happened to, to James. Some people who, who wrote um, the history of the, the early 60s AD tell how the Jewish authorities were so, so, so worried about how many people were believing in Jesus that they came to James, his brother, and they said, James, why don't you tell all of the people, why don't you tell them that Jesus was not the Christ? He was not the one who could give you soul-satisfying water. This is what they said to him. They said, the people have gone astray in their opinions about Jesus, as if he were the Christ. Persuade the people not to entertain these opinions concerning Jesus. Stand on the summit of the temple so that you may be clearly seen and your words be heard by everyone. So there's a man who loves the world's approval and the authorities are saying, you stand on the temple where everyone can see you and tell them, tell them that Jesus is not the Christ. And James refused. In fact, he stood on the temple and had told everyone, no, no, he is. He is the Christ. And the Jewish authorities were so angry that they threw James down. They stoned him and killed him right there. How do you go from loving the world's approval at the start of this chapter to just a few years later, being willing to stand on the top of the temple in front of everyone and say, yeah, he is the Christ, even though you hate me for it. He is the Christ because God changed his heart. And he can change your heart and my heart as well as we come to Jesus. He can change our hearts, not to care about the world's approval, but to care about God's approval. He can change our hearts to be prepared to be hated for standing with Jesus, knowing that God's approval matters most. God can change our hearts. So as we come to a, a close, and um, in a moment I'll pray and we'll 
um, seeing, and then there'll be a chance to talk to the person next to you. Um, it would be great to, to talk to the person next to you if you know them and ask, where do you see in your life a love for the, the world's approval or a love for external religion? And you don't need to talk much, but the thing to do is to pray. Pray with that person and ask God to change your hearts so that you would no longer love those things. God can change our hearts. And as we do that, we'll come to Jesus and we'll find that he is the one that anyone who's thirsty can come to him and will receive soul-satisfying water that will well up to eternal life. Let me lead us in a prayer. Let me can do that. Our Father, as we look at our own hearts, we... We can see the the ways in which we love the world's approval more than yours. The way that we love the external things to do with church more than we love the internal obedience to you. But we praise you that you're a God who changes hearts. And so we ask that this evening you would work in us to change our hearts. Please would would you teach us to love your approval most. To love heartfelt obedience to you most. And we pray that as we do that and come to the Lord Jesus, we would find the soul-satisfying water that he offers. And we pray this in his name. Amen.